Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your weekly host and interviewer. Could not be more anticipating today's guest. We have one of the most practical, opinionated, outspoken, and seasoned talent experts joining us. Patty McCord, the former chief talent officer of Netflix and the author of the best-selling book, Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. Patty McCord, welcome to Franklin Covey's On Leadership. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. Hey, delighted to have you. Thank you for taking time out of the surf, calling in today from Santa Cruz, California. Say hi to our dear friend, Guy Kawasaki, by the way. Will do. I'm guessing you're not out surfing today, or do you plan to be? No, I'm not much of a surfer. It's more like I'll take the dog to the beach and run around. That's, that'll be my surf experience today. The same for me, especially with all the shark attacks going on in the U.S., right? <laughs> yeah, we don't want to lose the fluffy one to a shark. We don't want to lose the dog to the shark, or you. Patty, thanks for joining us today. I am, I'm very excited about our conversation because you and I are like sort of separated at birth from different mothers because I think you are a tell-it-like-it-is wise but very sophisticated talent leader that's, you know, you've had a couple of thousand reps, right? You know, lots of hours, lots of years, decades in the trenches. You came up through a couple of different companies, kind of finished your corporate career at Netflix. You're now an in-demand author, speaker, writer, counselor, coach to other executives. I'm very excited to get into the conversation around your book, Powerful, which has sold just shy of 100,000 copies in a year and a half, which is incredible and talk about all the lessons you've learned around building a high-performance culture where you provide employees freedom to bring their best selves to work. First, I want to take yeah. a moment and have you talk a bit about your journey, your partnership with Reed, the CEO and founder of Netflix, kind of how you came to be part of that organization, kind of what you're doing now, and then we'll dive into the book and your thoughts around building a high-performance culture. Okay. Um, I got into tech as a recruiter, and I think that deeply colored my thinking over time because when you start as a recruiter, you're kind of a matchmaker, and what you want to do is you want to dig deep into what problems uh, somebody's trying to solve, what kind of team they're going to build, and finding the right person to do it. And then to be a great recruiter, and I, I was a great recruiter, you have to really... Um, understand what makes people different people tick and um, I particularly got into recruiting engineers very logical very straightforward people which matched really well with my personality because they're kind of no BS kind of folks uh, so that's how I got started and I and I worked in a couple of tech companies I worked at Sun Microsystems when Sun was the, the company in the Silicon Valley uh, I worked at a couple companies here in Santa Cruz and um, the, the true story is uh, one of the VPs at the company I worked with had left to join a startup and I had sort of coached him through making that decision. And I called him at his company, which is a company named Pure Software and said, hey, uh, you know, you should hire me. I'm kind of bored here. How's your HR person doing? You should do a recommendation for me. And he said, no, you told me if I took anybody from this company, Borland, you would break both my legs. And I said, oh, I didn't need me. <laughs> so he said, I'm not going to do it for you. And I hung up the phone. And if you're old enough, you'll remember that you could press star six, nine, and it would redial. And so I did that. And Reed Hastings' sister, who was the receptionist at the time, answered the phone. And I said, hello, I'd like to speak with Mr. Hastings. And she put me through. 
<laughs> that's how I met Reed. <laughs> so I went in and interviewed with him. This was a company called Pure Software. And he asked me what my HR philosophy was. And I started speaking fluent HR speak. You know, Reed, I believe it's about integrating the mission and the vision into my individual goals and incentives and providing um, comprehensive policies and procedures so that people can achieve their best self. And he looked at me and he said, did you say anything in that sentence? Like, don't you people even use words? Like, what <laughs> did that mean? So we got in an argument and I came home and my husband said, how'd it go? And I said, well, I kind of got in a fight with the CEO. And he said, you know, you have to grow up. You're the breadwinner of this family. You're going to have to be a real HR person someday. You're going to be sorry that you keep doing this. And Reed hired me. So that company, we grew through acquisition. We acquired uh, four other companies before we were acquired by our largest competitor. And we did everything by the book, literally. I would take their employee handbook and our employee handbook and smash them together. And that would be the new policy manual and the new employee handbook. Um, I didn't think at all about what the policies were. I just added more every time we got bigger because I figured that's what companies do, right? And um, our largest competitor eventually bought us and did what we did whenever we bought a company, got rid of all the executives, so Reed and I were out of jobs. And um, I started consulting again, and Reed and a guy named Mark Randolph co-founded Netflix. So the Netflix story is Reed called me up in the middle of the night, and I mean, literally like three in the morning. And he's like, I said, he says, are you sleeping? And I'm like, of course I'm sleeping. It's three o'clock in the morning. What do you want? And he said, I'm going to go run Netflix with Mark. And I said, okay, what is this a career, a career advice call? Like, sounds like a great idea. Reed, you go do that. And he said, no, I'm calling because I want you to come too. And I said, seriously, go back to sleep. There's no way, you know, I'm riding my bike every day. My kids know my name. I've got tons of free time. Call somebody that hasn't done a startup with you because I don't want to do that again. So that's thing one. Thing two is Netflix DVDs in the mail. It's just the dumbest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> Who's going to do that? You know, you and the three other people that have DVD players, it cost dollars back then. And I said, give me one good reason why I would do that. Why give up the life I have to do that with you? And he said, let's make the company we always dreamed of. Okay, so now I'm awake, right? And I said, well, if we did that, how would you know? And he said, oh, I'd walk in the door every day and I'd want to solve these problems with these people. I thought, yeah, that, that's pretty compelling. And he said, what about you? You know, what, what would it be like for you? And I said, wouldn't it be cool if we were a great company to be from? And I kind of said it facetiously thinking, you know, maybe someday we'd be like Apple or Google or like Google probably hadn't, was barely started back then. They, you know, a company where being at Netflix meant you were at a cool company. And now I look back on that night and I think, wow, it's kind of become my life's work to talk to people about creating companies that are great places to be from. Patty, it's a great journey. Talk about the inflection point that you wrote about in your book about when Netflix kind of became relevant. Talk about the transition and what happened at Christmas and DVD players or rather oh, VCR gosh, players. Oh, that was crazy. So we were going to go public in the year 2000 um, because everybody else was. And we had gone and pitched our IPO on Sand Hill Road and, 
we were drinking champagne, eating caviar, talking about our $100 stock and our private jets. And that was the year the first dot-com bubble burst. And the economy in the Bay Area just went to hell and companies were just going down left and right. Um, you know, pets.com was going, you know, the big companies were all going. And our bankers pulled our IPO. And um, it was a very capital intensive business at the time because we had to buy DVDs and stamps and envelopes. And the, most of our employees were people that put DVDs into envelopes to mail them, right? So um, every, every, literally every cent of profit, which we had none of, uh, every cent we got, we spent. Uh, DVDs cost 20 bucks a piece, the, you know, the labor. So it's very expensive. So around, uh, so they pulled the IPO. We didn't have very much money in the bank. Uh, September 11th happened, uh, anthrax happened. And I don't know if you remember yeah, that. Yeah, of course. There's powder in the mail, right? So, of course, the San Jose Police Department was down at our warehouse all the time thinking something had come through the mail, right? So, in October of 2001, um, I laid off a third of the company. We weren't very big, but it was a third. And I laid myself off because I figured, uh, and Reed talked me into, he's like, don't go yet. If we can't make payroll by January, you know, then you can leave. <laughs> so, but what happened that Christmas was DVD players dropped to $99 a piece and every one of us bought one. And the only marketing that we could afford to do was to put a cardboard red ticket inside each DVD player box that said, try Netflix for free. And our business went, it, it was, we were doing, and we couldn't afford to hire anybody, right? Because remember, every time I get a new customer, I got to buy three DVDs and stamps and envelopes and people to put them in. So we were doing twice as much work with a third as many people. And it was more fun. And that's, that's when we said, let's try and keep this feeling. And, and it's when I looked around and I realized, you know, I had said goodbye to anybody who wasn't technically capable and working on making just the DVD by mail service better. I said goodbye to almost all of middle management because I couldn't have anybody around whose job it was to tell somebody else what to do, right? People just had to do it. Um, and I said goodbye to honestly all the babies and whiners and complainers because it had to be people that really wanted to work hard and make it happen. And in the end, we got more done and we got more done with less rules. And what we did instead of creating processes and guidelines and rules as we got bigger was we just said, let us, we had a meeting every Friday, every Friday in the parking lot, we called it the metrics meeting. And we literally passed out pieces of paper that were the executive dashboard in every company. Right. This is how much money's coming in. Here's how much we're spending. Here's how many customers we have. Here's what our problems are. Here's what our issues are. I mean, we had basically an executive session with every employee in the company every Friday. So looking back on it now, I realized we taught people how to read a PL and we assumed that they could get it. Right. We assumed that we had smart people and they would ask. And the honest truth was, it was a really fabulous, great meeting. And, you know, it was also the meeting, we had it before the layoff too, where people said, you know, things are looking pretty tough. 
Um, it seems like the only thing we have left to cut is salaries. Are you guys thinking of laying people off? And we said, yeah, it's on the table. Everything's on the table. So that kind of transparency was something we did from the very beginning. And we just built on it because it worked so well. Patty, it's such an inspiring but sobering story. You were at Netflix for 14 years, chief talent officer, left you know, a little over a half decade ago from you know, buying DVDs with every dollar you had to now, do you know what the revenue of Netflix is about gross revenue? I don't, it's, it, I mean, it, it's so huge, it's, it's so ginormous. You know, when I left Netflix, I said to Reed, so what's next, world, world domination? And I had dinner with him a couple of weeks ago, I'm like, what, is it Mars next? I mean, you going with Elon, you've, <laughs> you've conquered the world, so what more do you want? So well, clearly revenue is in the multiple billions, so it's- Yeah, it's, and it's, the global revenue is um, as big or bigger than the U.S. revenue. That's just really wow. exciting. Wow, that, that, that's fascinating. But it's, it's so inspiring to hear you because you're an entrepreneur. Maybe you don't call yourself that, but you clearly are a scrappy, roll up your sleeves and get it done entrepreneur and look what's happened in less than 20 years. Uh, Patty, I wanna get into your point of view, your experience, your opinions on the role that HR plays in organizations. First, I wanna talk about this concept at Netflix of hiring fully formed adults, as you call it and the role that that plays in the decision-making around recruitment and retention. Talk a bit about this concept of fully formed adults. Reed says I'm not supposed to say fully formed because none of us are ever fully formed. We keep forming all the time. So I'll put that caveat in okay. there. Um, I just mean uh, mature. I, I mean people who, uh, and, and when I say fully formed adults or I talk about adults, I'm not talking about age because I've seen really mature 20 year olds that are really capable of doing really important work that matters. And I've seen really immature 45 year olds, right? Yeah. So I mean people who are, you know, grownups, they're responsible, they have, uh, and, and in every, I also mean in every job, I mean, people have mortgages and they have cars and they have families and they have, you know, responsibilities outside of work. So I think it's really foolish to think that when somebody walks in the door that they suddenly lose all that responsibility, right? And so I think that you can tell in an interview whether or not somebody's gonna feel responsible for the work that they do and make sure that you only hire those people that do. And the other thing is um, to make sure that you hire people who appreciate teamwork and want to be part of a team. I found in the Silicon Valley, particularly, there's this sort of the myth of the superstar, right? The individual contributor that can do unbelievably amazing work and they don't have to be very, you know, have to get along with other people to do it. And I find those employees to be just a rat hole, right? I mean, my theory is uh, a third of the people love the company, you know, are smart people who love the company and are going to be pretty positive about what you're trying to do. And there's up to a third of the people that are kind of suspicious of management. And it may be from their upbringing or people or places they've worked before where they think, well, you know, the leadership is going to screw you if you don't watch out. Those people have to go because the people in the middle pay attention to whoever gets the most attention. So, you know, you want to always bias for the kind of people who, um, who really love the problems that you have to solve. 
and and it's not just the product right it's not just the company or the reputation of the company you want people this is from my recruiting background you want adults who say yeah this sounds like something i could get up in the morning and get excited about solving and that's how you get all those right matches that's how you put the right teams together Patty, from reading the book, from reading your HBR article, which was exceptional, I highly recommend people go in Google Patty's article in Harvard Business Review and watching other talks, you seem like a, a brutal pragmatist, like a, a positive pragmatist, which I really kind of cleave to. You remind me a lot of Kim Scott from Radical Candor in terms yes. of your philosophy. Uh, we had, a guest, had her as our guest also. I especially liked the chapter or the section around your opinion on performance improvement plans called PIPs. You don't, um, you don't uh, uh, cloud your opinion on them. Talk a bit about why you think they're sort of a bit fraudulent. And you share a great story about talking with a manager and kind of calling him or her out on what's the purpose? Don't we know where this is going? Let's just be humane and talk straight. Will you kind of walk us through your philosophy and share that story? Sure. I, uh... One of the first talks I ever did uh, was a, a fairly young audience. And so, you know, I've been doing this for almost eight years. And I noticed that everybody in the audience was on their phone. And this is before I realized that everybody in the audience was tweeting. Um, but one of my favorite tweets out of that talk was Patty McCord says, RIP the PIP. Um, you know, sometimes we hire people to build something or to do something and over time they finish it, right? You hire somebody to build something and a couple of years later it's built and then you say, oh, well, I'd like you to maintain that. And the person can do that. They're just not going to be very good at it or very excited about it. And then we're mad because they're not doing a great job and they're, not, and they're kind of not acting excited about working at the company anymore. And they're mad because we've asked them to do something that they don't really want to do, which isn't what got them there and isn't what got them the recognition they got before. And pretty soon the relationship sours and then we're going to do this performance improvement plan process, which is a complete joke because we know that this person we're talking about is not not performing they're not performing because they're not doing the work that they love to do. I, I have what I call an algorithm for success. So some of my radical candor comes from years and years of working with engineers. And so for those of you out there who work with engineers, particularly software engineers, they see the world in a very particular way. It's good or bad, it's right or wrong, it's black or white, it's zero or one, right? And so with very logical people, the thing that makes the performance improvement plan so ridiculous to them is that they know it's a lie, right? They know, they know that it's a game to get rid of them and, and it's completely heartless and cruel. And so the story I think you're referring to in my book is of uh, a manager who had a woman on the team who was someone who was doing, at the time we did, um, we did manual quality assurance, right? We did manual testing on a lot of the products when we first started streaming. And eventually we wanted to automate all that stuff so that we didn't have to test every single device. And um, so the manager came in and said, you know, it's, it's time for us to say goodbye. Um, should we put her on a performance improvement plan? And I was like, she's the last person doing this in the company, which means she's the best. 
right? We're not, she's her performance doesn't need improving. We just don't need her to do this anymore, right? And imagine if you did that. I just think pips are the cruelest thing that we do, right? So every Wednesday morning, a manager's gonna sit down with somebody and um, they're gonna prove in writing that this person is incompetent, which means every Tuesday night, the manager's gonna go to bed with an upset stomach and probably drink too much, and so will the employee. And then by the third Wednesday morning, that person's gonna end up crying. And oh, by the way, we completely forget the entire audience for the performance improvement plan is everybody's teammate, right? Everybody knows what happens every Wednesday morning. And it sometimes is even the same people that came to the manager and said, you know, she's really not into it anymore. And she's not doing a very good job, but she should probably go. Are the same people who are now coming and going, why do you make her cry every Wednesday? This is so cruel. This is so heartless. And so, you know, I just think the act itself is really mean. I can't think of anything else that we do that's crueler. And I think that most people can hear the truth. I think, and in this particular case, we sat down with this person and said, we love you to bits. We just don't need you anymore. And, you know, and I spend a bunch of time going, where can you go where you're going to be the next best QA person, right? And there's you know, plenty of opportunities for somebody as talented as that. And so I just, you know, I do a talk right now where I talk about how I get to be on stage with professional coaches now. And I talk about being on stage with the winningest coach in the National Hockey League, a guy named Scott Bowman. And Scott Bowman's secret to success is he sits down with each of his players individually every 10 games of their 80 game season. And he puts together a plan for them, on, you know, what drills they want to do, what practice they want to do with their teammates, who their competition is, what their strategy for winning is, what, you know, and, and somebody said to me, so I'm on, he does this and the moderator on stage says, um, that sounds like a great plan, Mr. Bowen. Patty McCord, they say you hate the performance improvement plan. What would you recommend we do instead? And I said, but he said, you know, performance improvement is something that you do all the time. I don't have any problems with improving performance. I don't even have a problem with the plan to do it. I have a problem with the farce. Would you please come and fire me? I mean, not today. <laughs> you but... know what? I did an interview with, I wish I could find it because I never can find it. it. I did a podcast with a, a radio producer in New Zealand and he said, Patty McCord, sack me on the air. <laughs> no. I said, I said, are you kidding? He goes, no, really do it. And I, I did, right? I said, you know, you're really great at what you do, but you know, the truth is we're going digital and we don't need to do broadcast radio anymore and we don't need you anymore. And you should probably find something else to do and blah, 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 blah. And so and he laughed, you know, it was all part of the podcast. And six months later, he sent me an email and said, I couldn't stop thinking about our talk and I left, I became a producer. Wow. I, I really, I want you to be the person who fires me. Maybe tonight, maybe <laughs> next year, but I feel like it might be the best day of my life. Plus, you, you have know, a legacy of paying big severances, so I'm probably up for it. <laughs> let's talk about the words we use around that. Fire you? No, I'm, weapons are not involved. There's not blood, right? I mean, it's just, there's just, it's the whole thing is terrible. 
right? Our careers or journeys, we're not at the same place forever. I just did talk with 1,000 CEOs, 1,000 of them. And I said, raise your hand if you're in the job that you had when you graduated from university. None, right? No one raised their hand. I'd say, raise your hand if you measure retention in your company. 999 of them raised their hand. Like, doesn't this feel like a little bit cynical to you? Yet that phrase got someone elected president, right? So there must be something around that. Yeah. We yeah, won't go there. True. Okay. So let's yeah, talk about, there. let's talk, Patty, before we go to the culture deck, which of course you've achieved some accidental, but you know, well-earned fame around your role in the now infamous, famous, ubiquitous 10 million downloaded versions of the Netflix culture deck. Let's go there in just a second. I have it in my okay. hand here. First, yeah. I want you to talk straight and give some advice to the millions of people listening today that happen to be in a human performance, human resource, talent development, organizational development, coaching capacity in their company, in that kind of broad HR suite. Give them some yep. tough love on how to become uber relevant in their organization or make sure that they're adding enormous value so the Reed Hastings and the Patty McCords of the world find them kind of, quote, in their boat rowing with them. First, <laughs> Stop speaking HR speak. Just, just stop. Stop. Stop with the words and the language that nobody understands except other HR people. I'm not kidding. And start speaking the language of the business you're in. And if you don't know how to read your PL and you don't know what the most important goals are and you don't know what all the sales targets are, what, the, what makes a customer extraordinarily happy, you, you know, I used to tell my HR team. Yes, we are a service organization. It is not spelled S-E-R-V-A-N-T-S. And the people we serve don't work here. The people we serve are the people that use our service, that use Netflix. Your neighbors, your kid's teacher, the guy at the grocery store, the guy that's working in your garden. That's who we serve. And we serve them by making sure that we have incredible effective teams in our organization that make great products for them. So the most important thing you can do is get out of your HR role and get into your business role. What is it that's gonna take to make the business successful? So that's number one. Number two, stop speaking HR speak. And the third most important advice I could give people that they almost rarely take is throw something away. So, I've been surrounded by innovators my whole life. And when I was at Netflix and we were inventing the streaming service, we didn't say, you know, let's make broadcast TV just a smidge better, right? I'm sure somebody can do better than the cable, you know, grid. <laughs> we said, let's make this an amazing, compelling experience for people to hear stories from all over the world. Stories that they're going to love to hear, stories that are going to really move them, right? And so when your goal is that, then you have to stop doing things that don't matter anymore. And I find in most companies, most HR policies and procedures, and when I, when I pin down that HR person say, tell me what the purpose of the annual performance bonus is, right? That's, here's a great example, right? We do an annual performance bonus. I was just coaching a company here in San Francisco, and I was 
and I'm talking to the CFO and the head of HR, and they've spent the entire month of December rolling up everybody's goals and OKRs and all the business objectives and doing the calculations to department by department, team by team, individual by individual to pay the year-end performance bonus that they always pay and have always paid, right? And I said, so if I look at this objectively, this really isn't an award for performance, is it? It's deferred compensation because you always get it, right? And I said, and let's take a look at your employee population here in San Francisco, the most expensive city to live in the nation probably at this point. And so what are they gonna do? Go to their landlord and say, oh yes, I can pay you that extra $1,000 a month in rent. Uh, can I give it to you in January? Because I always get a $12,000 bonus in January, right? So, I mean, it's an example of like, I, I'm not saying that bonuses might not be a good thing in your organization, but how do you know they work, right? We don't ever say, well, without them, <laughs> or <laughs> why not just say, you know, I, this is what I did at Netflix. I said, tell you what, we don't do performance bonuses. We just expect a lot from you. We're just gonna we're just gonna roll that in and pay you more, but we're gonna expect more. We're gonna expect you to be a high performer all the time. That's how that works. And you know what? Worked out just fine. So the so the advice is to really spend some time every day, once a week, looking around you and saying, why is it we do that? Is it still relevant? And if we started from scratch, would we do it that way? Right? We're managing people like we did in the 1965. You know, I, the idea that it's our job in HR to protect us, I mean, we're kind of getting schizophrenic here, don't you think? Like on the one hand, you got to protect the company from those evil employees that might sue you. And on the other hand, your job is to make them deliriously happy all the time. I mean, you know, no wonder people are confused as to why we're there. Patty, you and others at Netflix really kind of flipped the script on a lot of the uh, uh, culture policies, you know, the human resource policies on vacation pay and travel, employee reimbursement. I love the phrase, I think, is there a five word phrase that defines the travel policy at Netflix? Talk about that. Uh, act in the company's best interest. Act in the company's uh, best so interest. The, the, here's the story of how that came about. So um, when we get to talking about the culture deck, I'll tell you that I was, um, I think of myself as the COO of the culture, the chief operating officer is like, okay, how do you actually make this stuff work, right? So here's the story of um, acting the company's best interest. Uh, we had gone public, uh, the auditors were all over us, the SOX guys were all over us, it was time for grown-up policies and procedures. And at the time, you know, we had been operating pretty much uh, within budgets because we talked about money all the time with everybody, right? And we didn't give people a lot of um, parameters. We just said, you know, do what you need to do. So now all of a sudden it was time for a travel policy that had to be approved by finance and as an expense policy that had to be approved by finance. And so the, one of the stories I tell is I, we had moved offices in LA and I went down there, I'd sent the receptionist to facilitate the move. And I said, oh, I forgot, we're in a different place. I got to find a new hotel. And she said, oh, you should stay at the place I'm staying around the corner. 
it's called La Hermitage. And I said, you stayed there? And she said, yeah, I got a corporate rate. It was only $800 a night. And she said, the room service is amazing. And I'm going at lunch to get a hot stone massage, right? So I come back and I said, to the, tell the story to the CFO. And he says, see, see what I mean? See, if we had a travel policy, she wouldn't be making mistakes like that, Patty. And I pulled out a copy of her travel, you know, her expense bill and a copy of the mover bill, like the movers had pizza for lunch, right? And they were the same. And I'm like, her issue is not that she can't read a policy. Her issue is that it's the company's money when she's paying the movers and it's not the and it's not her money when she's paying the hotel, right? And we should be thinking about it in the same way. And so why should uh, somebody with a PhD in math go ask somebody in finance for approval of any, an expenditure over $10,000? They know what greater than 10,000 is, right? Instead, and this took years, right? These are like when you decide to do things differently that doesn't happen overnight. Instead, what we did over the years was take all of those people in finance whose job it is to approve stuff and replace them with people who can sit on the team with the teams at their team meetings and say to them, hey, by the way, you know, we've budgeted $10,000 per employee for equipment expenses and our run rates 12.5. What do we want to do about that? Right. And I think it's because we're purchasing these sorts of things that we hadn't anticipated when we were, when we did the first draft of the budget last year. Right. And so those are meaningful conversations about how the business works and how you spend money and how you do things that are the ones that actually get work done rather than having somebody go ask permission from somebody else. And it's also been my experience that if it's your job to give somebody permission to do something, you get your power from saying no. Patty, let's use the remaining part of our time to talk about the now uh, famous Netflix culture deck. Instead of asking you questions, yeah. I'd just like to turn it over to you and have you kind of tell us the truth behind how <laughs> this was developed, how it's transitioned, yeah. what confusion it may have caused out in the industry and, and why you created a reference deck. Just kind of um, take maybe five or seven minutes and just kind of walk us through its truth. Okay, well, like I told you in the early uh, story of how I came to Netflix, what and, and how Reed and I wanted to create a company that we both wanted to work for, what we decided to do differently was write it down. And at the time, Reed was uh, the kind of guy who thinks in PowerPoint, right? He likes making lists, he likes, uh, he likes the, um, the outline format. And so he and I in our one-on-ones would say, so the first chapter, if you go back and read the Netflix culture deck, which you have in front of you, the first chapter is a chapter on behaviors we value. He said, let's go offside and do a values exercise. And I said, let's not. You know, we've got a lot of work to do, and I think this is sort of esoteric, and I'm not sure any of the values exercises we ever did in our last company ended up to mean anything. And I said, but I will help write down the kind of behaviors that we expect. Let's write down instead of values, let's write down what you're going to get rewarded for and what you're going to get punished for not doing right? Let's write down, we really want smart people. Let's write down, we want adults. Let's write down that we want people who are going to be responsible. Let's write down those behaviors. 
And so that part of the culture deck, so what, what would happen, literally, this is the truth, Reed and I would go through a couple of drafts at a one-on-one. -on -one. He would usually do most of the writing of it. Um, we'd bring it back and then we would take it to our executive staff and say, hey, we're thinking about publishing this to the rest of the company and using it as um, an onboarding document so that people can know what they're getting into when they join Netflix. And, you know, when we started doing some of the controversial stuff, like getting rid of time off, um, you know, the heated, great debates we would have at the executive team were so healthy. You know, when we started talking about um, high performance and only having people that were into it and doing a great job and only high performing people. I mean, we had a couple of people on our executive team who are like, I don't who would want to work at a place like this, right? What about loyalty? What about um, what about feeling like a family? You guys are you're explicitly saying we're not a family. I've always wanted to work for a company that felt like a family. I mean, so we thought these debates are so interesting. Um, let's take them to the rest of the company. And so before we would codify, you know, whatever was in our PowerPoint presentation, literally everybody in the company would have had a chance to look at it, read it, talk about it, make suggestions, make edits. You know, I remember one time later on, um, it's in the later part of it, I had recommended that people um, go interview, right? Uh, uh, because I do, I think it's a really great way if you're unhappy to find out what it is you're unhappy about, go tell a stranger. And when somebody in the company came to me and said, how do you guys expect anybody to get anything done when you and Rita told everybody that they should spend all their time interviewing? You know, nobody's going to get any work done. And I said, you know, I, I just walked through the cafeteria and there are hundreds of people there. So they're not all interviewing as far as I can tell. And I said, um, are you upset with the idea of it or are you upset with how it's written? Right. And I knew that she was upset with the idea that people on her team would go out interviewing. I knew that she felt cheated on. Right. Um, and when, you know, sidebar, when I talk to women's groups now, I say, look, when they talk about engagement, nobody put a ring on it. <laughs> and interviewing is not cheating on your husband. It's a really smart thing to do. So she said, no, 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 it's, it, it's not that. It's uh, I don't like the way it's worded. I'm like, it's PowerPoint. <laughs> Rewrite it. <laughs> and I'll, let, I'll edit it. So that's how we did it. We did it um, chapter by chapter. The chapter on high performance, writing high performance, didn't take very long to write. In my own team, I would say it took four years to put together the me mechanisms to make it so. Right. So I had to have a really great recruiting team that really understood the business and the teams and could could find fabulous people for the work that we were going to do, not just the work that we were doing. So I had to like I, I hired my best headhunters and brought them inside and paid them what they made with bonuses outside as a headhunter. And they saved me money. Here, crazy idea. Uh, I had to put together, get rid of the idea of performance improvement plans and figure out what our severance policy was going to be. I had to spend years reprogramming managers who came from other companies to have open and honest conversations about, about work with people because most of those times they would come in and say, you know, I'm having a problem with one of my people, Patty, could HR take care of it? And I would, you know, 
shove them out the door and go, I'm not managing your team, you are, right? Uh, I can do a lot of tips on that stuff too. But basically, so, so we wrote a chapter, uh, we tried to make it real. When we made it real, when we had a company with a very high density of very talented adults who were, uh, were performing, that, that's when we could write freedom and responsibility. Right. We couldn't do that until we had a whole bunch of people that we trusted to do that. And then once we wrote freedom and responsibility, then we could write the next chapter. Right. Then we could start talking about how compensation really works. Right. Then we could start talking about all of those things. So that entire deck that you have in your hand was our internal uh, onboarding document. The honest truth is we would, when 10, 15 people would join the company, Reed and I would sit in a room with them, on a story, and just go through the deck. Pat, Patty, and that's that how we did it. And okay, so, be, but better story. We're driving to work one day, Reed and I carpool together. And uh, he said, I met this woman last night at a dinner who has this really cool new company. Um, they put PowerPoint slides online, right? It, and I said, it's called SlideShare. They're doing PowerPoint slides online. I said, oh, that is a great idea. I wish I had thought of that. I wonder what people are going to publish. And you said, oh, I put the deck out this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you did what? And he said, what, 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 why are you upset about it? I'm like, oh, God, Reed, you know, it's the ugliest document known to humankind. I don't even think the fonts are the same chapter to chapter. You got the little arrow slides. And, and I'm like, it's just graphically hideous. And he said, you never told me that. I was like, well, I, you know, I didn't want to <laughs> upset you. And, and I said, secondly, you're going to scare off all my candidates. And he said, only the ones we don't want. <laughs> Patty. So Patty. interviewing that deck changed the way we interviewed the next day. This discussion is so valuable. I, uh, I wish we could take more time. I want to ask a couple more questions. First, okay. you're right. This PowerPoint deck is not, is not very visually appealing, but it's deliberate. <laughs> it's prophetic in terms of when you look at it. In fact, I reread it last night. And it's widely available. Google, you know, a Netflix culture deck or Patty McCord culture deck. It's everywhere. Been downloaded probably 10 million times, literally. And this program will probably add a million downloads to it. When I looked at it again last night, I looked at it less through the lens of an executive officer at Franklin Covey, which I am, thinking about our culture. I looked at it through the lens of my own maturity or immaturity, my own level of engagement without a ring, with a ring. And I was a little bit humbled as I looked at some of the pieces around selflessness and making sure that I'm putting the firm first, recognizing that, you know, I'm here for the firm, but I'm also here for my own career, my own skills. Talk about some briefly some of the most passionate pieces in here that you think could give some advice to people's own level of maturity and, and, and contribution. Yeah, I I think that the selfless part is also tied to company first. You know, it, it's you, it's something like I said earlier, Reed says we're never fully formed. <laughs> you know, adults are always seeking more forming <laughs> and, um, and that's part of it. It's, it's that constant learning about who you are and how you operate with others. And the selflessness comes from 
um, understanding as you grow as a leader that uh, you, you get more done by having amazing people around you that do amazing. I, I told you I had dinner with Reed not too long ago and I said, so what are you up to these days, boss? And he said, I make almost no decisions and I'm so proud of it. Like, like the teams are so competent and they're so capable all over the world. It's just like, he's like, I go to bed at night, not no longer proud of like, boy, I made the right call on that one. And more like, wow, we've got a great leader in that organization. They're making the right call. And so, you know, I think for me it, over the years, it's been looking at and teaching other leaders, like the way for you to get ahead is to surround yourself with people that can make a huge difference to your organization. Patty, I think the, the last discussion point is something I'm, I'm especially intrigued about, and it comes from your pragmatism. You're, you're, you're an uber realist, and you're very wise in your season, and you've made mistakes, and you've had successes. You mentioned it briefly earlier. We talked about interviewing. You talked really um, real about letting people go, meaning if they want to leave, let them leave. Don't try to hold people hostage. Talk a little, about, a little bit about your philosophy on building a culture where it's okay if you leave and you're not shamed and we want you to be happy. If you're not happy here, no problem. Yeah, uh, I, have, I call it my algorithm for success. It goes like this. I, I use the word algorithm because I was surrounded by geeks. It says, is what you love to do that you're extraordinarily good at doing something we need someone to be great at. And that changes over time yeah. for you and for the firm, yeah. right? Sometimes you go to a company and you take a job because you wanna learn how to do something and you wanna be surrounded by people who are better at than you so that they can teach you so you could be better. And then you get better and you wanna solve a bigger problem, right? I mean, um, I see it all the time in uh, particularly in the tech world, because that's where I spend a lot of time, in people who really like um, building stuff, and so they want to, and they want their problems that they're solving to get more and more complex and complicated. And so, in order to do that, you kind of have to go to a bigger firm sometimes, because that's where problems are bigger and they're more complicated, right? So, um, the startup world doesn't last forever. Startups don't last forever. So, you know, I think it's just, I think it's 50% of it is us as employees, as people. I like you, you, when, before we got started, I have the best life now. It is so fun. You know, I, I, I really love having a lot of freedom now and I loved being an employee. And I think now more than ever, there's so many ways to work and that we should think about uh, as we go through our careers and our whole lives about not just changing companies if, as it were but changing the way you work and who you work with and how you do it maybe it's a nonprofit and then it's a for-profit I don't know but those are all we all have lots of different ways we can explore that now and I just think it's a lot more fun and it's more realistic Patty I almost never do this in fact I don't think I've ever done it on air but before we started taping, you talked a bit about the role that Dr. Covey and his work in The Seven Habits and how it influenced your life. What's the biggest lesson you learned from Dr. Stephen R. Covey, the co-founder of our firm, and how it shaped the way you think about the world, yourself, cultures? And now, I told you earlier, um, I think for me personally and for my work, it's been the idea of big rocks. And so, uh, 
Covey talks about, you know, we can fill our lives with all these little things, the endless emails or the phone calls or the conversations, just all this little stuff that comes up every day that we think we got to get it done. We got to get it done. We got to get it done. And, and the metaphor he uses is if you fill a bucket with sand and then you try and put boulders in, they don't fit because it's full of sand, right? But if you put the the big rocks in first, the stuff that's most important, then you can pour the sand in and it'll fill in all the cracks and crevices. And so it's, it's, a, it's a visual that represents prioritization and reflecting on what's really important to you and what's important to the company. When I coach companies now and I advise them, I say, look, strategy is not what you're gonna do. That's called planning. Strategy is what you don't do, right? So you have to find those big things that you must do and get those done first. And so I would say that that's the part I remember most that I still use in my life and my work every day. Patty, you're Jim. Thank you for your contribution. What's your favorite Netflix, Netflix program? I know you weren't on the programming side. You make that quite clear. What's the program you like the best? It's too hard. <laughs> it's, it's it's just too hard. It depends on you know where my head's at yeah. these days. What was I just? I'm I'm anticipating the new season of The Queen. Um, I'm still mourning the end of Orange Is the New Black. Um, Stranger Things is hysterical. So you know, I I cut the cord for a thousand years until my husband decided he wanted sports back. So as soon as somebody does a sports streaming service, it's all over for cable. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I, I'll leave you with, um, uh, we were, we used to listen to the blockbuster earnings call on a polycom in a conference room and we'd all sit around the table and listen. And we remember, I remember one time an analyst asked John Antioch, the CEO of blockbuster, what he thought of Netflix. And he said, they are a net. They are nothing no one cares. They will never, ever succeed. Don't ask me about them anymore. And I remember on the whiteboard behind our CMO was our subscriber numbers. You know, just, just going up into the riot. And, we, and I remember sitting there thinking, wow, we could beat Blockbuster. <laughs> it was bold. <laughs> Patty McCord, co-creator of the Netflix Culture Deck. Do Google it, download it author of the new best-selling book, Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. Patty, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been our honor. Thanks so much for your time today. We'll see you back next week for another discussion on Franklin Covey's On Leadership.